Hi, Fresh Head listeners. It's Will here. The Fresh Head team is taking a few weeks off after a busy year. While we're away, we'll be replaying some of our favorite episodes. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to take a minute to ask for your help. You're listening to us right now for free. In fact, all of our content is open access and freely available. However, it's not free to create, produce, and publish Fresh Ed. We are funded by the generous donations from listeners like you. If you wanted to support independent media, or maybe you've used Fresh Ed in your classes, or you simply love our show, then please consider making a donation. You can do so at freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Again, that's freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for your support, and we'll be back with new episodes soon. This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we explore the relationship between UNESCO and the World Bank from the 1960s through today. So the World Bank started granting educational loans, but it had no expertise in education uh, at the time. So it was a pragmatic solution to work with UNESCO, which was the, you know, the main authority for education in developing countries at the time. My guest is Marin Elfert. She has recently published in the International Journal of Educational Development an article entitled The Power Struggle Over Education in Developing Countries, The Case of UNESCO World Bank Cooperative Program, 1964 to 1989. I would say at the beginning it was more of an equal partnership, but that changed quite dramatically in the 1970s. I think the story is interesting because we see how the epistemic authority over education shifted from the educators to the economists and and from UNESCO's more you know humanistic approach to uh, an instrumentalist rationalistic approach to education. Marin Elford is a lecturer in education and society in the School of Education, Communication and Society at King's College London. Marin Elford, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you for having me. So at the inception of UNESCO, how was it involved in education development? So UNESCO was founded uh, in 1945 as a specialized agency of the United Nations for Education and Culture and Science. So it was involved in education development since the beginning. And in the post-World War II years, the context of uh, decolonization, demographic growth, and increase in schooling created a demand for educational planning. Um, And UNESCO had an educational planning division and focused on the planning needs of developing countries. And one of UNESCO's educational priorities has always been literacy, uh, which was a big part of UNESCO's first educational flagship program, Fundamental Education. René Maheu, who was uh, UNESCO's Director General uh, since 1962, he always dreamt of a literacy campaign and he actually thought that it might bring the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, to UNESCO. And, uh, but literacy was highly politicized at the time during the Cold War with countries like Cuba running literacy campaigns in the early 1960s and it was not supported by the United States. So the approach to literacy became a contentious issue also between UNESCO and the World Bank and I think we're going to talk about that a little bit more um, because the bank was interested in education from a productivity perspective. 
and certainly not in enlightening the masses, so to speak. But UNESCO was. UNESCO was more about this. Literacy was a way of empowerment and enlightenment and sort of making individuals feel, you know, as human as they can be. Exactly. And UNESCO had this human, you know, this human rights based, this humanistic enlightenment uh, based approach to education. So literacy was a big part of, you know, bringing uh, uh, these these rights, uh, making making education uh, a right. Uh, and um, uh, but it, but but it was uh, very difficult for UNESCO um, to because because literacy did not really uh, yield you know productivity or it couldn't be measured it could be easily uh, uh, proved and that was that became a difficult issue with the World Bank and also the UNDP which was a funder of UNESCO. That's an interesting question about the funding of UNESCO. I mean, so in the in the beginning, how was UNESCO funded as a member, as sort of a connection to the UN? How was it funded? How, you know, how did voting work? What was the structure of the actual organization? So the funding was was always a, a very difficult issue for UNESCO. It was always under pressure because it was notoriously underfunded. Um, and the United States and several Western countries had early on decided, uh, actually already before UNESCO was created, to channel funds for post-war reconstruction bilaterally rather than through UNESCO. So the United States always favored bilateral aid, which meant that UNESCO's budget would remain very limited. And UNESCO relied on extra budgetary resources for its operational work, which made it very vulnerable. Um, and there were also a lot of turf struggles between the UN organizations and different bodies, for example, with the Economic and Social Council, ECOSOC, um, also the UNDP, uh, which funded UNESCO's work uh, in the first decades. And then UNESCO also have a, has a governance system in which a small poor country has the same voting power than a powerful rich country. And in the two decades between 1947 and 1967, 70 countries from Latin America, Asia, and particularly Africa, joined UNESCO. So, and those were the times of the non-aligned movement and later the, the new international economic order. And these newly independent countries you know, of the South, they used the United Nations as a platform to voice their claims. And you can imagine that a lot of conflict arises in an organization that has such diverse membership. And so that was often used um, by uh, conservative forces, for example, in, in the United States to construct UNESCO as, as, you know, as a politicized organization that's prone to, to communist influence. And, and in fact, America did pull out of UNESCO. I guess it's been twice at this point. Yes, absolutely. So the first time uh, the United States pulled out in, in uh, 1983, uh, and that was when uh, UNESCO had this, uh, uh, there was this uh, new international economic order debate uh, at the time. And uh, the director general of UNESCO uh, uh, was the Senegalese, Amadou Mata Mbo, and he was very interested in uh, participating in this debate and contributing to this debate. And so uh, UNESCO's uh, contribution was this uh, McBride Commission, which was named after the uh, Irish uh, Nobel Peace Prize uh, awardee uh, Sheehan McBride, um, which came up with a new international uh, communication order. 
Uh, and the idea was that the developing countries would be less dependent on, uh, on the uh, Western news agencies and the Russian news agency. Um, and it also this report also anticipated some problems that we see today about the commer commercialization and monopolization um, of, of the news agencies. Um, but that it was used by the United States to, you know, it was opposed by the United States. Uh, they said that it was going against freedom of speech and, uh, and then uh, withdrew from UNESCO in 1983, uh, or maybe it was 1984. Yeah, it was an intentional, uh, the scholarly literature is very, is, is this consensus that it was intentional and that it was ideologically driven by these mm. ultra-conservative forces. And, and when did America leave again in UNESCO? Yeah, so then uh, it left again in 2011. So it came back under the uh, uh, George Bush uh, Jr. administration um, and then left again when uh, the, the General Conference of UNESCO adopted Palestine as a, as a member, as a full member of UNESCO. Um, and since then, the uh, the United States uh, st stopped paying their uh, membership dues, um, and then a few years later, they uh, they pulled out completely. And and of course, this is uh, very very uh, difficult uh, for for UNESCO because it meant that thirty percent of its budget. Uh, w was uh, was gone, and for an organization that has a very very small budget in the first place, uh, that was really uh, dramatic, and it also uh, paved the way for the uh, yeah, for the increasing private influence in UNESCO and and the tied money because UNESCO to be to to to, to be operational needs to look for funds. And uh, but many of, of those, you know, of those uh, funds are tied to certain specific projects that the countries are interested in. So it, it ultimately weakens um, UNESCO. OK, so that's the very brief overview of, of UNESCO's work in education development, some of the big ideas like literacy, some of the problems with with sort of precarious funding the sort of politicized nature of it, the sort of equal voting um, rights that people have, different member states have inside the organization. Now let's turn to the World Bank as another big player in education development. How did the World Bank first get involved in education development? Right, so the World Bank um, was created in 1944 at the Bre Bretton Woods Conference and it, and it was more known at the time as the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. And it was endowed with the mandate of financing the reconstruction of uh, war-devastated Europe initially. But then in the 1950s, the World Bank expanded its lending activities uh, towards the newly independent uh, developing countries of the South and funded infrastructure projects such as roads, dams and uh, industrial uh, production and things like that. But then in the early 1960s, uh, when education gained prominence as a pillar of economic growth, the bank started uh, paying attention to education and granted its first educational loan in 1962 uh, to Tunisia. And there were several factors at play uh, why the World Bank went into education. Um, 
The bank's educational investments were geared towards manpower and economic development in member countries underpinned by human capital theory and, and the recognition of the third factor, the, the residual factor. And the move into education was also related to the foreign policy priorities of the United States because the Kennedy administration promoted international development as a foreign policy issue and had identified aid and education as important tools to expand American influence and prevent communist influence um, in, the, you know, in, the, in the countries of the so-called third world. And the Kennedy administration played an instrumental role in launching the United Nations Development Decade in 1960. And the World Bank was, uh, as Kennedy himself said, uh, the chosen instrument of this mission. So, uh, so that was also an important factor. And, and moving into education was also, to some extent, a public relations move. Um, because it looked, you know, it looked better. It looked more like the, the, the bank was helping people, right? I can I can understand why it would look good for some bankers to move into education. And it looks like charity in a sense. But why did the U.S. have such influence in the World Bank? I mean, the World Bank is the World Bank. It is, you know, a global institution with many different member states involved. So how did the world how did the U.S. gain so much power inside that institution? Yeah, I mean, the World Bank has uh, it has always been highly influenced by um by the United States, you know, it's it's been uh, created uh, in the United States. Uh, the, the United States was the dominant power after the Second World War. It's based in the United States, uh, very very close to to the White House. Um, it it many of its uh, 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 some of its its presidents were well the first for sure were, were Americans. And a lot of its staff uh, was also American. And, and, and then uh, during the McNamara years, uh, the bank uh, started to, be, to open up also to more international staff. Uh, but, but, but even those people were trained usually in American universities. Um, you know, and uh, they were very often they came out of these uh, economics of education uh, uh, and, and economics uh, programs. So, so there's been uh, always a very strong American influence, and and the World Bank is not as democratically, you know, organized as UNESCO. With you know, every country has the same voting power. Uh, the World Bank is is you know, uh, is 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 organized in a different way. That uh, that the, the the more you pay in, the 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 more say you have. Oh wow! So so for instance, if America was the the biggest contributor to the World Bank they would have more votes in the end. Yes, yes. Right, okay. And so how is the funding sort of situated in a sense in the World Bank? I mean, are they earning a lot of money from interest, from loans that they've previously given out, or are member states contributing to the budget of the World Bank? How does the the funding work? Uh, so member states contribute to the budget of the World Bank, but the World Bank also uh, makes money on Wall Street uh, by by selling uh, by selling bonds to investors. So it has always been very much uh, uh, associated, uh, uh, you know, with with the financial world of worlds uh, of Wall Street. And uh, although it is formally, uh, uh, belo- it formally belongs to the United Nations system. It's always been reluctant uh, about this this membership to the to the 
to the United Nations. And there is in the agreement between the United Nations and the World Bank, there is also a, a clause, you know, uh, regarding the independence of the World Bank. Uh, so it was always a very reluctant, uh, um, yeah, member of the family of the United Nations. Right. Okay. So here we have the World Bank, which is, it sounds like it's almost swimming in money. It has much more money, doesn't have to worry too much about its funding, has a governing structure that's heavily dominated by the United States, um, is getting into education lending for issues of productivity. And you have this piece that talks about how the World Bank and UNESCO, which seems to be completely opposite in many ways from the World Bank, starting to work together. How did that happen? How did the World Bank and UNESCO begin working together? In education development? So the World Bank started granting educational loans, but it had no expertise in education uh, at the time. So it was a pragmatic solution to work with UNESCO, which was the, you know, the main authority for education in developing countries at the time. And it was also politically important for the World Bank to collaborate with other UN agencies as the bank knew, you know, they, that they were moving on other organizations' turf. And as there was increasing overlap and competition between UN and non-UN agencies when development took off uh, with the first uh, UN development decade, um, collaboration between the UN agencies was the suitable thing to do. And it was also encouraged very much by the leadership of the United Nations. And the World Bank was also involved in the creation of the uh, IIEP, the International Institute for Educational Planning, in 1963, and still has a seat on, uh, on the governing board of the IIEP today. And that was the first example, really, of this cooperation of the World Bank with, uh, with other international organizations. And the IIEP belongs to UNESCO. It's a UNESCO institute. And the bank supported the IAP because it recognized the need uh, for educational planners, but it was also a kind of goodwill gesture uh, to UNESCO. Um, and the bank saw it as the first concrete measure of cooperation between, between the, uh, the bank and UNESCO. And then the World Bank and UNESCO signed a memorandum of understanding in 1964 and established a cooperative program. And that's what uh, my paper is about. Um, and at the operational level, a joint division was established, the Education Financing Division, EFD, which was located in the premises of UNESCO. And it was staffed by UNESCO, but in agreement with the World Bank, especially the director had to be agreed upon by the World Bank. And it was funded 75% by the bank, 25% by UNESCO. And actually, the World Bank started a, a similar program uh, with uh, the Food and Agricultural Organization, FAO, and later on in the 1970s, also with the WHO. So in a sense, it's it's the, the idea is that the, the World Bank is in partnership with these different organizations and those organizations are providing most of the manpower and then the world bank is providing most of the funding that's sort of the arrangement exactly that was the arrangement at the beginning and the staff was highly qualified and highly paid a p5 level so that's the highest professional salary level uh, at the united nations and at its peak the efd had 35 p5 positions um, as one of my interviewees said, it was the most powerful division in UNESCO. 
and the EFD was in charge of preparing World Bank educational loans. Hmm. Wow. Okay. So the EFD, which sits inside UNESCO and is populated mostly with UNESCO staff, and those staff members are very highly paid and paid mostly from 75% from the World Bank, they're the ones preparing loans for education development for the World Bank. So, I mean, there's a lot of um, institutional overlap here, you could say. And you could see how the World Bank might not like that arrangement so much. Well, exactly. But when you say UNESCO staff, you know, yes, it was in a, in a way it was uh, because UNESCO staffed this division. But it was uh, staff that very much belonged to, you know, the, 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 the field of the World Bank. You know, uh, I, I used Bourdieu's concept of field for this paper um, because they were chosen f to fit into this division to be able to do that to this work. Right. So so it was uh, there were some um, economists also, uh, even some very qualified people, even former ministers who worked in this division. Um, so it was a real authority within UNESCO, but it was always perceived as an alien body, as a Trojan horse, because it was uh, because it represented the World Bank, right? And um, and uh, uh, and and a very particular, um, more instrumental approach to education that the that the the rest of UNESCO uh, was not really. Uh, interested in or was even uh, opposed to so it was it was really an interesting arrangement this 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 uh, kind of uh, heteronomous field to speak with Bourdieu within within the world within the UNESCO it was even based in the in the basement although that wasn't meant as a bad treatment because those offices are really very nice but but two of my interviewees talked about that and said you know it was really an alien body in UNESCO it was even in the basement so obviously you know that relationship isn't going to work out in a sense right so how does it change like obviously something has to give if people even who were working there felt a little alienated. Yeah, it changed uh, a lot over the decades um, because initially in the 1960s, there's no question that UNESCO was the authority in education and the bank had a lot of respect for UNESCO. And you can see that from the correspondence that there was a very cordial tone. They called it, the staffers called each other by their first name. They shared information with each other. And from the memorandum of understanding, um, which gave UNESCO a lot of autonomy in principle, it's clear that UNESCO tried to keep the World Bank in the role of, you know, a mere funder of education. And maybe UNESCO also thought it could use the World Bank for its purposes, like, you know, educating the world. Um, on the other hand, it was quite clear from the beginning that UNESCO was working for the bank, of course, you know, and one of my interviewees cl clearly stated that they were working for us. So um, I would say at the beginning, it was more of an equal partnership, but that changed quite dramatically in the 1970s uh, when the World Bank started to build its own resources, uh, started to, to build uh, intellectual capacity and, uh, and, and uh, moved more into playing you know, also a policy role uh, um, and not only uh, the role of a funder. So you point to the 1974 education sector working paper. What did that do in this sort of longer history of the shift 
um, in the cooperative program. So in the 1970s, the World Bank expanded more, you know, towards a development agency. Um, and um, the 1974 education sector working paper uh, was um, uh, a, a representation of that. It, and it was a turning point in the relationship between the World Bank and UNESCO because the paper revealed the World Bank's claim to moving from a funder to an intellectual authority in education. It also revealed that the bank moved even more onto UNESCO turf. For example, it added the importance, this report added the importance of social dimensions uh, to the mere emphasis on economic growth. It paid more attention to primary education than before. And UNESCO staffers were uh, irritated by the paper because they hadn't been consulted. And many people thought it was very arrogant. Uh, for example, uh, Peter Williams, who worked for the uh, British Overseas Development Institute for many years, he wrote a scathing critique of this report, which is actually a very interesting paper. It was published in 1975 in Prospects. It's called Education in Developing Countries, The View from Mount Olympus. And, and so he, you know, he uses this, this, this metaphor for the World Bank and he, he writes, the trouble with living on the top of Mount Olympus is that you only have other gods to talk to. So, so Williams was particularly annoyed uh, by the World Bank spreading the wisdom about the social dimensions of development because he said that many development experts have argued this all along without being listened to by the bank. And Williams also criticized the sense of crisis that the bank invoked in relation to education in developing countries as in his view, developing countries have achieved much more than the, than the World Bank gave them credit for. And this is something that we see uh, uh, time and again, this discourse of the crisis, right? Also in the, in the 19, uh, 2018, I think it was, World Development Report that the World Bank published on education. It's also this sense of crisis that's being invoked. And not only by the World Bank, actually, um, it's a very common common thing, you know, to invoke a crisis to which the, you can then offer the solution. So, okay, so the bank is is basically saying we don't only want to be a funder anymore. We want to have some sort of intellectual authority when it comes to development projects, the planning cycle. We can be involved much more than just, you know, developing loan agreements. And then what happens in 1978? There's There's the Bell Report. How did this sort of further change the relationship between the World Bank and UNESCO? Up until the late 1970s, the bank's methodology was dominated by manpower forecasting, which was quite controversial also within the bank. Um, and World Bank staffers such as Stephen Heinemann, who had been trained in the rate uh, of return approach at the University of Chicago, lobbied for a change of methodology. And uh, in your interview uh, with Stephen Heinemann, he talks about that. So the education director, Aklilu Hapte, was open to this idea and in 1978 established an external advisory panel on education named after David Bell, uh, executive vice president of the Ford Foundation, who was the chair of this, of this panel. Um, and the Bell report recommended that the bank should diversify its approach and expand its investments to primary education, secondary education, higher education, and education research. 
Um, so that offered the opportunity uh, for the World Bank to expand even more, to go into new fields. Um, and the Bell Report opened up potential for increased collaboration between the World Bank and UNESCO, but it also provided a, a legitimization for the bank to move away from UNESCO, of course. Um, so uh, the the report was, uh, yeah, it was it was uh, met with um, suspicion, let's say, in UNESCO. Uh, the, in in principle, the UNESCO people were quite happy with you know with what the Bell report was saying. Um, but uh, because they've always said, you know, we need to move into, we need to do more, uh, uh, also primary education, also higher education. But of course, they saw it coming uh, that the World Bank was now um, becoming more independent, let's say, and doing their own thing. So, you know, how did this agreement, this cooperation program between UNESCO and the World Bank finally come to an end? I mean, it feels like it was a slow... 10-year period or so where it, it's it shifted away um, and and UNESCO and the World Bank got further and further apart but how did it actually end so uh, in the 1980s uh, the relationship between the World Bank and UNESCO had turned uh, sour and uh, the EFD had already declined in size and UNESCO uh, served basically as a consultant pool at that point to the World Bank but even at that uh, the World Bank turned more and more to external consultants as they were cheaper and more flexible. And many in the bank felt that the cooperative program had become a burden. And it was, of course, politically delicate to end it. And that's also why it dragged on, because uh, because it was the relationship was already uh, very difficult at the at, in the late 1970s. Um, and then there were other issues, such as uh, some personnel issues. There were a couple of EFD directors that had been hired by UNESCO without seeking World Bank uh, approval. And one of them in particular was absolutely not qualified for the job. And so there were these quarrels, you know, um, all the time. And then finally, um, in 1988, uh, the World Bank president uh, officially uh, terminated the cooperative program in a letter. And the letter was uh, was very diplomatically uh, worded, uh, offering the prospect of collaboration in other fields, you know, such as science and technology. Um, there's always been talk also uh, that, that UNESCO and the World Bank would collaborate more in the field of culture and things like that. So yeah, so they ended it in a diplomatic way, but ultimately UNESCO was, was fired. So, you know, given this given this historical relationship, do you see legacies of it today and, you know, the way in which the World Bank and UNESCO, you know, work together or don't work together or, you know, you know, what's so important about looking at this cooperative program, in other words? I think the story is interesting because we see how the epistemic authority over education shifted from the educators to the economists and and from UNESCO's more, you know, humanistic approach to uh, an instrumentalist, rationalistic approach to education. And the rise of the World Bank, I would argue, led to a homogenization of the field of the, uh, development and the colonization of education by economics. And, and there are other examples, you know, for uh, later examples for this epistemic uh, 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 power that the World Bank had 
um, over UNESCO. For example, the Education for All movement, EFA, which was launched shortly after the official termination of the cooperative program in 1990, where the organizations also worked together um, with other organizations as well. Um, and that further contributed to homogenizing education for development because uh, the World Bank prevailed with its push for universal schooling, which was underpinned by the World Bank's rate of return studies. George uh, Sakharopoulos, who was very influential in the bank at the time, despite the resistance of UNESCO that advocated for a broader approach to education, you know, again, including literacy and adult education. Um, and so also in Education for All, UNESCO was overpowered by the by the World Bank. And then uh, today, you know, the Global Partnership for Education, which is a very influential organization uh, in, in development, uh, in education for development today, emerged from the World Bank, the World Bank's fast track initiative. And right now, actually, we also see a duplication of work between the World Bank and UIS, the UNESCO Institute for Statistics, uh, in the field of learning measurement in the context of uh, Sustainable Development Goal 4. And interestingly, um, the UIS and the World Bank have just uh, 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 signed a, a memorandum of understanding, um, which, you know, Clara Fontevilla's work has, uh, she has worked on that. Um, and and so you know that does does that sound familiar, right? Um, so the World Bank is again uh, uh, moving into this into into this field of of learning measurement uh, and 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 competing with with a, with an uh, an institute belonging to UNESCO. So I guess you know how how do you understand the power of the World Bank? and even the power of UNESCO in the world today where there's so many different organizations working in international development? Yeah, that's a great question. In, in my paper, I draw on Bourdieu's concept of fields to analyze this story of the World Bank-UNESCO relationship because these organizations represented very different fields. Um, you know, as we said, the bank belonged to Wall Street rather than to the, to the United Nations system. And UNESCO, on the other hand, emerged from the internationalist movement that goes back to the League of Nations. And so the two organizations represented very different ontologies, um, internationalism, humanism versus this rationalistic, technocratic uh, approach that the World Bank represents. And I think that even if we have a greater group of organizations today involved in education for development, and we also see a, a rise of multi-stakeholder groups, right, such as the Global Partnership for Education, they all belong to the same field in a way. Um, they are governed, you know, by, by the same logic uh, and, and epistemology that has, uh, you know, through isomorphic processes, and they reproduce similar technocratic practices and technologies. And the World Bank has always reached out, always expanded its role, and, uh, and it is now in the era of, of SDG4, prioritizing learning measurement, you know, as I said. So the bank continues to pursue McNamara's mission to measure the immeasurable, the unmeasurable. And I argued in the paper 
that the World Bank was more autonomous as a field, yeah, to think with Bourdieu. In Bourdieu's theory, the more autonomous a field is, the stronger it is. And fields strive for autonomy as that allows them to generate their own values and norms free from external influences. And pressure exerted by dominant fields can lead to heteronomy. That's what Bourdieu calls it, loss of autonomy of a field. And I think that's what happened with UNESCO. The World Bank gained more autonomy because it was backed up by powerful forces, by the US government, by its alignment with capitalist logic, and also by the rise of economics as a discipline. Yeah, The, the epistemic power that, that, that this discipline uh, um, gained. The econo and the economic financial field extended its influence into education, forming a financial intellectual complex. Joel Samoff has written about that, that has significantly constrained the thinking about education and development. UNESCO, on the other hand, has been weakened by the economic field that was brought into it by these external pressures Individual autonomous experts, for example, uh, have been replaced by technocrats in UNESCO. Um, the lack of operational budget and the loss of American funding forced UNESCO to accept tied money that we already talked about and seek partnerships with the private sector. And I think that similar developments have occurred in other international organizations, such as the FAO, the WHO and UNICEF. And more research needs to be done to understand these processes and how the UN system is being weakened and corrupted by these developments. Well, Marin Elfert, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed today. It's just such a fascinating topic, and I really hope more people will do historical research on development. Yeah, I hope so too, including yourself. Marin Elfert is a lecturer at King's College London. Her new article appears in the International Journal of Educational Development. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on FreshEd are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not FreshEd, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. FreshEd's team includes Sherry Yang, Lushit Waba, Fatih Akhtas, Ingjung Cho, Obafemi Ongunle, Dion Jiang, Joe Fei, Annabella Botang, Anya Lin, and Phyllis Minash. Original music for FreshEd was created by Digital Primate. FreshEd is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to FreshEd by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brown, and I'll be back next week.